Hi, this is Lindsay McGregor. And this is Neil Doshi. And you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 712 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox and you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 712 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. While you're on davidberkus.com, you may want to check out the information about my new book, Under New Management. It is out. For those of you that paid attention during launch week, we got some amazing buzz and even ran into some inventory issues. Supply and demand just couldn't meet each other. But all of those are fixed. And if you go to davidberkus.com slash new book, you can check out more information about Under New Management and get your copy today. I think you'll really enjoy it. I think you'll really enjoy the ideas in it and really enjoy learning how leading organizations are upending business as usual. Today's episode features Lindsay McGregor and Neil Doshi. They're an amazing couple that together wrote the book Primed to Perform, How to Build the Highest Performing Cultures Through the Science of Total Motivation. But I would say they're also super motivated to work with each other. In addition to being co-authors of the book, they are co-founders of their own boutique consulting firm and they're married. They are life partners, business partners, and writing partners. Moreover, they bring together some amazing science on motivation and motivational factors and how culture affects that. It's a fantastic interview about their new book, Prime to Perform. Let's check it out. So who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Neil Doshi. I'm one of the co-authors of Prime to Perform, uh, co-founder of a firm called Vega Factor. What what I do is I work with organizations and people to really build the highest performing culture as possible based on the science of what actually drives human performance. My name is Lindsay McGregor. I joined Neil on this research journey many years ago to really discover what causes people to perform at their highest. And like Neil, I roll up my sleeves each and every day to go into the guts of organizations and figure out how to build the systems that do this to not just tell people to be nice to each other, but actually build the processes that are going to turn their organization around. I love so much of what you both just said, um, not only because it's about culture and science and motivation, but because of a fun, cool word that Lindsay said, which is processes, right? And the idea of putting, reinforcing systems and processes, et cetera, in place. It's more than just like, hey, we should all love each other and be nice to each other. So um, we have so much to dive into, and I'm looking forward to it. At first, though, I, I, you guys have an interesting story that I want to make sure for context our uh, listeners sort of know about. You're not your average business book co-authors. Um, in fact, your partnership extends way beyond that. You're not even your average co-founders, et cetera. So how did you um, guys meet and begin to start working together and how did that lead to the new book Prime to Perform? Yeah, so I think that um, it's safe to say that when it comes to Lindsay, I went all in. So Lindsay is a co my co-author, my co-founder and my wife. Um, we actually met uh, a while ago now in our previous company. We used to work at McKinsey and Company uh, and we, we met there. We realized 
pretty early on that we had a really common set of passions, a really common set of interests. Uh, we both wanted to solve the same problems. And the more we got to talk about it, the more we started to work on it with each other, um, the more we realized that I think we wanted to do more than just write a book with each other. My parents said to be careful of people who study motivation, yet their warning didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, um, it, it tends to work out that way, right, despite our, our best efforts. My, my wife, whose dad is a professor at the same university I teach at, told his daughters not to marry a professor, and then here we are, right? So <laughs> it tends to work out like that for sure. So, um, so the book, you're, you're each each other's better half in more ways than one. The, the book, um, Prime to Perform, is, is great um, for, for one thing because it dives into a lot of different science on motivation that doesn't sound academic. And I, I love that about your, your backgrounds coming from McKinsey and coming from what you do um, in your consulting firm now. You're skilled in the research but, but skilled in the application, which I, which I absolutely love. I think, though, that you, you make this really cool bridge that not a lot of people make between culture and actual provable empirical science on motivation. Um, and I want to dive into that. But first, I, I guess let's talk about why so many cultures are, are like so many company cultures are terrible at this and why, I mean, part of me, like I actually always wanted to blame this just sort of organic and lack of planning about culture, but you blame a lot of different biases and a lot of different, like what gets frozen, an, an unwillingness to change. Etc., which is kind of the opposite of what I always thought of what shapes the bad things about a culture. So how do let's start with bad cultures and how do they form? And then we can talk about what a good one does as far as reinforcing motivation. Such an important question. We, when you look at the data, when you look at uh, what's happening out there, there's so few cultures that are actually amazing. And so you have to start by asking yourself this question of how is it that we all universally believe that culture is critical to our organization's performance and culture to better human outcomes. Yet, despite universally believing it, it's so difficult to build a great one. Uh, investigating that particular question, we believe that there are three things that actually prevent us from building great cultures, particularly at scale. The first is a concept we write about that we call the blame bias. The blame bias in the, in the realms of sociology is also known as the fundamental attribution error. It's a bias that we innately have that causes us to blame people for outcomes rather than the context that they're in. And so if we blame people for outcomes, not the context, we then tend to focus on solutions that aren't about the context or the culture, but they're focused on trying to poke and prod the individuals. So that's the first thing. For example, there was a great study done at a factory in Ghana where they asked people what caused a factory accident. And if you were um, somebody worked close to the person who had the accident, you knew that there were contextual things that caused the accident. But the further and further away you were from working in the same space, the more likely you were to blame the victim, to say that person must have been lazy or not following the right policies, which leads to very different answers. If you believe it's the context, you start painting the ground yellow and updating your machines more frequently. But if you blame the individual, you say, we just got to hire better people or kick out the ones that we have today. Yeah. Uh, the, the second thing that we found was it has to do with performance itself and how rarely do you see organizations actually ask themselves, what is performance? What we concluded is there are actually two types of performance. These two types are actually completely opposite from each other. One is tactical performance. Tactical performance is effectively how well the company executes its plan. It's, it is the force of predictability. 
the opposite is adaptive performance. If tactical is how well you execute your plan, adaptive is how well you diverge from your plan. It is essentially the force of adaptability. What companies forget is that predictability and adaptability are mutually opposing things. The more you try to make something predictable, the less adaptive it is. The more you try to make something adaptive, the less predictable it is. And that to achieve the highest levels of performance, you've got to balance these two opposing things. Unfortunately, predictability, tactical performance, very easy to measure, very easy to see and understand. Uh, and so it tends to get the lion's share of weight and energy and thinking in an organization. These organizations inadvertently destroy their own adaptive performance in this name of predictability. That's the second issue. The third issue is while most organizations know what drives tactical performance, very few people really fully understand what drives adaptive performance. And one of the primary objectives of writing Prime to Perform was to answer that question. What really is the driver of adaptive performance? And that's where we realize that why people do their work determines how well they do their work, especially when you think about it in the terms of adaptive performance. Do you think that some of this is you know, part of that larger merging in the nature of work, you know, so, so, I mean, most of us are basically playing with old tools, right? Most of us are playing with tools that were used when tactical performance was all we asked of anyone but sort of senior leadership, the sort of Frederick Taylor factory, you know, uh, factory optimization type thing where we just needed your body to do a repetitive task all the time. And then even the early sort of knowledge, even Drucker, when he was writing about knowledge workers, it was still a lot of repetitive tasks. And we're just sort of now moving to the point where I, th I think we've reached that tipping point where for most of corporate America, for most knowledge workers, you're, it's probably 51 or 52 or maybe even 60% adaptive performance needed rather than, than technical. And so I think, uh, do you think that sort of pins this realization that, okay, we've got these old tools and, and maybe for a while it was comfortable because it was a slow transition, but now we're finally at that point where we're realizing we need new tools? I think we're coming back from an overcorrection. You know, when Frederick Winslow Taylor was studying all of this, he was the first to really bring a hypothesis type of approach or a scientific approach to working. And he thought that there was one best way to do everything. And it wasn't until now that we're realizing that there may be as many best ways of doing things as there are individuals. What's interesting is that through the knowledge work that organizations are doing, yes, we're recognizing the importance of creativity and innovation, but we've actually also learning how important that adaptive performance is on jobs that we assume aren't innovative or creative. So for example, Toyota factories, there's a Toyota factory in Kentucky that implements 90,000 employee suggestions per year. And that's on an assembly line, on something that we assume, if we don't know any better, might be all tactical performance and require no creativity. So in our research, we've actually found there's lots more adaptive performance on the front lines of even you know, assembly lines, factories, retail stores, all of these places we um, tend to overlook these important qualities. It's funny. I was I was just reading a study about um, what's starting to be called service creativity, which is essentially one of the predictors of uh, customer satisfaction. Is essentially how adaptable and how creative our frontline employees able to be. And we, I think, for the I loved your term overcorrection because I think it's actually true. And when you think about customer service and customer satisfaction too, we overcorrected into putting in systems and troubleshooting flowcharts, et cetera, thinking that would standardize. 
and we overcorrected so much that now you know, like if you call a support center, you know when you're being treated through a flowchart. And what we actually need is that ability to sort of adapt and have the the creativity to be able to do that more so on the front lines than, than or just as much on the front lines as, as anywhere else. Yeah, there's no doubt that's that's so true. Everyone has experienced calling a call center and realizing that the person you're talking to is reading a script back to you. Um, and not only how, how bad that feels as a customer, but that employee didn't want to read that script to you either. That's, <laughs> that's right? a great point. That's essentially an organization that has doubled down on that tactical performance. This, this pursuit of predictability has made us do that. That everyone's going to read a script back to us. They're going to have intense call metrics uh, in real time in front of them. Uh, any deviation from the script, any deviation from the metrics results in penalty. We're going to have somebody listening to that call. All of that is this pursuit of extreme predictability. Not a bad thing. It's important. But when you overdo it, it will come at the expense of this adaptability, which really is how creative are your people? How resilient are they? Are they active problem solvers in their work? Are they good, are they good citizens of the organization? These attributes will, will get destroyed in this pursuit of extreme predictability. Well, and it's, it sort of overlaps with, I know you talked about it in your book and you sort of just hinted at it too, but I think you call it um, compensationism. Is that, is that the right term from the book on just sort of we compensate for kind of what we, what's easiest to measure, which is generally tactical stuff. And so we reinforce all throughout our culture stuff that maybe we don't even think matters. But like you said, with all those different metrics you're being measured on, those are minor things that eventually become major parts of the culture because it's what's being compensated. It's so true, and we call it compensationism because how you compensate has become a religion. It's like there's people on two sides of this war without um, that much study or fact base behind it. And we found that behind compensation, it's really not about money, it's about how the money affects your reason for working. That the highest performers work for the right reasons, and you have to think about how these systems affect people's motives. No, that that's so true. I I think about all of those studies with pay for pay for performance and um, primary school teachers, elementary school teachers, et cetera, and how how essentially they didn't work because I don't know that anybody that decides to become an elementary school teacher for the money, right? Nobody's in it to maximize their incentive compensation. They're in it for a totally different why. And when we're linking compensation to stuff that they may or may not even control, we're sort of distracting from their why. So so we had this overcorrection. How do we re-undercorrect? Is that the right way to reverse the trend? Or do we have to re-overcorrect? I don't know what to call that. Uh, re-overcorrect or <laughs> re-undercorrect? Either way, we'll roll with it. Yeah. How do we swing back? The, this is one of the biggest challenges that we've seen in, in this problem. How do we actually help any organization at any size build a high-performing culture? Uh, what we realized is that this core insight that why people work really is the determinant of how well they work. Uh, their motives are the driver of their performance. And when you unpack that, you realize that there's some motives that actually increase performance, some motives that decrease performance. What we found is that inside an organization, there are many different processes, systems, uh, policies that affect the motives of their people. In most large organizations, these policies, processes, systems are actually designed to encourage the wrong motives and discourage the right ones. In fact, the exact opposite profile that you want for performance. And so the core answer to this question, how do we build a high-performing culture, is 
you have to systemically look at all the processes in your organization that affect the motives of your people and design all those processes to increase what we call the direct motives and decrease what we call the indirect ones. I, I love kind of everything that you've just talked about. And I loved, I mean, I loved when Simon Sinek first came out with the people buy why you do, right? But there was never a thing that could sort of bridge the gap between, no, 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 here's the science behind why it works and also how to put it into practice. And you guys have started to do that with um, with Tomo, which sounds like FOMO, but let's, uh, which is probably why I like it so much. But you're coining a new phrase, but also kind of teaching people how to do it. Let's, let's talk about that total motivation factor and how we can actually start to build that, what that looks like on a performance evaluation or on a process or a system that we're going to put into our culture in the organization. Yes, so Tomo is the antidote to FOMO. It is um, based on the simple truth that why you work determines how well you work, and there's six whys. Each why becomes less and less about the work and more about other things. So the first play is when you're working because you love the work itself. Like I enjoy writing, Neil enjoys woodworking, it's just something we love to do. It's not the video game in the corner of your office and it's not the ping pong table, it's the actual work that you do. That's when you feel that play motive at work. Like if you think about people at play when you have a hobby or something like that, you're doing an activity for no reason than just doing the activity. The work is its own reward. And when we studied play in the workplace, just about any job is capable of creating that play motive, but you have to be intentional in how you create that. The second motive is purpose, and this is when you believe you're working because of the impact of the work. So a teacher with play enjoys creating lesson plans, for example, but a teacher with purpose is working because she believes in the impact of her work. The third motive is potential, and this is when you're working because the work is somehow going to increase your own potential. So that teacher might not be working because she enjoys teaching, but because one day she wants to be a principal or an administrator, and this is a good stepping stone to get there. So play, purpose, and potential are what we call the direct motives because they're all in some way directly connected to the work itself, and they enhance performance. But there's three motives that we call the indirect motives because they're not very connected to the work, and those start to destroy performance. Emotional pressure is when you're doing something out of fear or guilt or shame or FOMO. It's when you're chasing prestige. It's um, why I played the piano growing up, for example. My mom used a lot of emotional pressure. Uh, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of stories like that out there. The set next is economic pressure, and this is when you're doing something to gain a reward or avoid a punishment. It's not about the work anymore. It's about this layer of rewards or punishments that are bolted on top. And finally, the last motive is inertia. And this is when you cannot say why you're working. You're coming to work today because you came to work the day before, because you came to work, to work the day before. And this is surprisingly common. So we can actually measure how much of each of these motives somebody feels, add up all the good ones and subtract all the bad ones, and get to this one factor, this one number, that we call the total motivation factor, or TOMO for short. So TOMO is when an organization's culture maximizes or creates as much play, purpose, and potential as possible, and as little emotional pressure, economic pressure, and inertia as possible. That's TOMO. What's amazing is when we've analyzed the processes of many, many organizations, they do the exact opposite. Processes like career ladders, compensation, performance management, how the jobs are designed, how that identity that organization is defined, how leaders lead. In many organizations, these processes are actually designed to decrease, uh, decrease TOMO, 
uh, not increase it. And that's fundamentally why so few cultures are actually great. Okay, so I before I blamed Frederick Taylor, but now I think I'm blaming B.F. Skinner, right? And the whole idea that we can get a bird to do whatever it wants as long as we give it a food pellet. Because I'm thinking about these factors. And I'm thinking that, yeah, these... these um, these were the ones that were easy to measure. They were the ones that were easy to reward. And so we did that and we reinforced it. And, oh, oops, we didn't realize that people are probably more complicated than birds. And so we probably have to do a little bit more. Um, and, and struggled for a long time to figure out how do we quantify that and how do we build that into, into systems. And, and Tomo does that and becomes that sort of – becomes the antidote, antidote to FOMO. Although, I don't know. I, sometime, I, I, sometimes I like FOMO. But, yeah, Tomo is the antidote to <laughs> – Tomo becomes that antidote to, um, to FOMO and to a lot of, of other things. I mean, I'm guessing that, in my opinion, is why it's sort of so easy to do that. But so beyond just, I think everybody who's worked in an organization for longer than a week has felt how inertia just seems to be the driving factor of almost any group of people. We do it this way because we've done it that way in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you think about it, a lot of organizations, they don't realize this, but their human capital strategy is oftentimes to increase inertia. I'm going to make things just good enough that you don't feel compelled to leave uh, and, and really no more than that. And, and in response, uh, I'm going to work just hard enough to where you don't kick me out. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and what that really looks like is I'm just going to check the boxes, which is really all tactical performance, no adaptive. Right. Yeah, no, totally. So, um, I mean, I, I think the answer is you get started by figuring out what your uh, TOMO score is. But... I'm, I'm working an organization, maybe I'm leading an organization that has that inertia culture. Is, is that the best place to start is let's just figure out where we score on the factors? Or I think a lot of people who are listening already know that they're probably not scoring high enough in the right columns. So how do we, how do we turn that around and how do we start making the first, what are the first few steps on this journey? We've, we've experimented with lots of companies on this question. Like what's the best way for a large organization, a small organization, really any organization to start to take this journey? Uh, and we've tried many ways, like starting with measurements, starting with uh, a leader mandate, starting with some kind of big, big change program. What we concluded at the end of the day was the best first place to start is to simply teach all of your folks these concepts. Um, it's amazing. In, in many ways, we are borrowing from all of the lessons and learnings behind how social movements form. Uh, and one of the big parts of how social movements form is people are forming a common understanding of the problem and its solution. And so step one, when we work with an organization, is not really measurement even. It's let's just teach everyone these concepts. And even if we just stop there, these organizations will start to change themselves. Um, but that's what we suggest is step one, teach everyone these concepts. So step two is we suggest most organizations form a culture and people team. Uh, most organizations have an HR team, but... HR doesn't own the mandate of improving adaptive performance and improving TOMO. A culture and people team would own those two mandates, and they would own all of the different processes that actually affect TOMO. The, in the second step, forming that culture and people team, it's building that team, giving them the processes they need, and giving them TOMO as a metric, but only to diagnose. TOMO is not meant to be a report card. It's not meant to try to increase emotional pressure. It's really meant to be a tool that your culture and people team could use to diagnose which processes are most destructive to Tomo. Hmm. I think that's um, I think that's an awesome start. I, I especially like step one. 
Um, because I think that's a huge culture lesson right there is just making sure people have the same common language to describe it. You know, I think if you're listening to this and you're hearing these descriptions and it's resonating with your, your culture, you're probably also feeling the, oh, now I finally have words to describe what's going on. And so now we can have that conversation, which leads right into that step two of the people having the conversation. So I think it does. I think you're absolutely right. It begins with those words. So if you want more of those words, um, 60,000 some words of those, I don't know. <laughs> um, the book is Primed to Perform, How to Build the Highest Performing Cultures Through the Science of Total Motivation. Now, our listeners know what's coming next, but you all may not. Our five questions we ask uh, all guests going to be particularly interesting to hear this, not only from a business partnership, but a life partnership. So here are our questions. Question, the first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? For me, I was sitting in a bar with one of my managers who told me, Lindsay, you spend about half of your energy worrying about making a mistake every day and just putting so much pressure on yourself to never make a mistake. Put all of that energy into thinking about things you love and you will unlock a whole nother level of performance. And she was totally right. That's pretty good advice. Mm. For me, it's hard to say. I have to think about this. The best piece of advice I've Listen ever gotten. to your wife. <laughs> that's good advice. <laughs> that's the advice Lindsay gives me every day. I mean, there's this there's this saying that's so cliche, you know, among married couples, happy wife, happy life. But in your case, it's happy wife, happy business, happy book, happy everything. So yeah, listen to your wife. Yeah, that's totally true. <laughs> On that note, I'm at, all right, I'm going to cut you off. We're going to move to the next question. So, um, what's an average day look like for you? Our average day is... In general, I spend probably most of my time working with organizations. So my average day is usually not in my home city. Uh, my average day wakes up, we uh, go to our, a, a client that we might be working with, and we'll be spending time with their senior leaders, their junior managers, their HR teams, essentially the folks that own the different processes that, that increase people's tone on their adaptive performance. And we work with them to implement the, the pieces of TOMO and and uh, the stuff in Prime to perform. I'd say that's probably half my average day. The other half is uh, our firm is new and this firm that we're building, we're on a mission. Like our goal is in 20, 30 years, we want to be able to say and feel like this problem of why does it feel like we're building low productivity organizations? Why does it feel like the human outcomes of work, like low levels of engagement, extreme levels of stress are so high we want to look back and say we made a material difference in that, that we've built a world with significantly better organizations that are higher productivity with better human outcomes. Um, so I spend probably the other half of my time uh, working with Lindsay, working with my colleagues in Vega Factor, trying to build, build an organization that can achieve that mission. For me, I'll tell you about today as a typical example. I started my day talking with a school system about how do we reduce emotional pressure for teachers. My next conversation was with a big Fortune 500 company doing their second annual TOMO survey to think about how have they changed their processes over the last year and how do they need to refocus for the upcoming one. Then we had what we call the reflection huddle with our own team where we get together every Friday and we talk about what we learned this week, which is our play, what impact we had this week, which is our purpose, and what do we want to have, what do we want to learn next week, which is our potential, so that we as a firm share our knowledge and really sort of take a moment to reflect on all that we 
all of the fast-paced energy and the way we're moving every single week. So that's just one short, typical day. And then, and then, of course, mixing in time to do podcast interviews together, which is well, you know. sharing sharing the knowledge. Because what's amazing is that it it doesn't you don't have to have us to make this change, right? There's so many people that are are um, love thinking about this stuff and ready to armed with a little bit of knowledge can start making change in their own organizations. So it's it's really about spreading the word so that this becomes a movement that all organizations are working towards. For us to be true to our mission we believe that we have to share our knowledge as widely as possible. Um, you see a lot of firms that kind of do things like us and they try to keep knowledge like this proprietary and in-house. We don't think we'll ever get to the point where we'd say we really help the world build better organizations if we weren't completely out there trying to get that knowledge out there as fast as we can. What are you reading right now? For me, I am rereading The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. Um, he had a great quote in there that happiness is or that he shared um, that one of the that happiness is the joy that we feel striving for our potential. I love that quote, and it's a good reminder for me of how do you implement Tomo in your daily life. My reading tends to be pretty super nerdy. Uh, I tend to scour academic journals and try my best to devour something like five, ten different pieces of academic research in a given day, all in the spirit of trying to advance the knowledge or advance the thinking. Awesome. What do you believe that most people don't? Tomo. <laughs> I think most people intuitively understand Tomo in their guts, but have been raised with the sticks and carrots approach to leadership. I think that uh, building on that is this realization that, in fact, you can see it in our data, that the Tomo of an organization is 75% roughly its environment and only 25% the actual people that they have. And in most organizations, they look at culture they look at performance and they, they blame their people, they don't blame their culture. And we very much believe that if you want to actually materially make a difference on your performance, blaming your people only makes it worse. You've got to actually blame your culture and make your culture better. I love that. I, I try and drill into my students the 85-15 um, the rule from Deming where he, he always said if somebody screws up, there's an 85% chance it was the system and only a 15% chance it was them. And, and you're totally right. I think so often we default to thinking about it the other way, that the odds are it was that actual person. Um, so the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? I'm paraphrasing somebody who's a greater thinker than us, but um, actually, let me restart that one. Who was it? Anyway, I'm not going to be able to do it. All right. <laughs> well, who, okay, so what is it? Me, and then I'll see if I can think of it, and then you can do it again. All right. Um, to paraphrase one wise leader, it was that a great leader creates the conditions for people to motivate themselves. I think as a leader, it's thinking about your organization systemically so that you can help each person achieve their own personal aspirations. I have a bit of a, maybe more of an engineer's perspective on this. Like, in many ways, the angle that I approach a lot of this thinking from, this notion of organizations and TOMO and performance was really through the lens of, of being an engineer. And I think of these organizations as machines, but machines that actually have to deliver incredibly complex forms of performance in an incredibly volatile environment. And so when I think about a leader, a leader in, this, in these organizations has a few real responsibilities. First and foremost is to keep the TOMO of their people high, uh, as high as they possibly can. 
And the second is to advance the skills and learning of their people as fast as they can. If it's, to me, if a leader in our organization at Vega Factor does those two things, uh, drives up the tone of their people and increases their skill, the skills of their people, that is really the ask. Great answers both. I, I, I totally agree. And I love that idea of thinking about an organization as a, as a machine and thinking about what tweaks we can make to that to get better performance. That really, to me, is, is the goal of the book, Prime to Perform. How to build the highest performing culture through the science of, of total motivation is to figure out how do we shape a culture, how do we shape systems that reinforce people's positive motivational attributes um, so we can drive better performance and also make it a better place to work. So I... I love that you're you're in this mission. I love that it's steeped in science. I love that, by the way, if you're a geek like me, there's a whole appendix of like, here's who we got these ideas from and here's the further reading. And it's actually before you get into the notes. So it's like the further reading after the further further reading. So the book is great. Thank you both for writing it. Again, it's Prime to Perform. Neil and Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us.